Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled, Forgetting About Eternity. Join us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 33. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Good morning. So good to see you uh, here this morning. We've been journeying through this uh, series now we're calling Eternity, and today we're talking about forgetting about eternity, and it happens to all of us. Take your Bible out and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I looked back over my sermon files. I've addressed, uh, I've taught a message out of Matthew chapter 6 in the last two years, five times. Yeah, you can go about this and and I'm going to go about it a couple more times before this year's over, all right? So last week we were in Matthew chapter 6 and I focused on the first part of of verses 19 through 33. I'm going to focus on the second part today, okay? And each time I do this, I do it from a different perspective and teach through it a little bit different, and that's going to happen today, okay? So Matthew chapter 6, indulge me, I'm going to read through it once again, and I promise you there's going to be things emerge, truth out of the text that, that will kind of stare you in the face, and you'll be, I think you'll be amazed how much truth is here, and you can, Pastor Ben can do like Tons more messages just on this passage right here. So starting in verse 19, Matthew 6. Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and devouring insects destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and devouring insect do not destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I just don't think you can read that first part enough. Every time I read it, I'm like, I'm shaking my head inside going, yes. That is exactly how it is. Verse 25, therefore, and that word means in light of what's just been said, because of what's just been said or revealed, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life and what you'll eat or drink or about your body and what you'll wear. Isn't there more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to his life? Now, don't quote that verse. I mean, quote that verse carefully. You know, when you're going to tell somebody or share that verse, because that verse can be annoying. Be careful with it, all right? Why do you worry about your clothing thinking about the flowers? Think about the flowers in the field or how the flowers in the field grow. They don't work or spin. 
Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was closed like one of these. And if this is how God closed the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow, is tossed into the fire to heat up the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? So then don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So then, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Now that one, that last verse, I think you can wing that around a lot, right? I... I have had it quoted to me, and I've utilized it a lot myself. So I want to ask this question before we look at the second half of this passage. Here's the question. Could it be that we, as children of God, who proclaim the sovereignty of God, who talk about the nature and the grace of God, often function out of fear? Could we, could we be people that function out of fear? Do you, or do you function out of fear? Let me ask it like this. Just a moment of honesty, how much of what you do somehow, some way is motivated by something less than faith? How much is motivated by fear? Now, if you're going, no, 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 no I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't do things out of fear. I, I, I don't think you've read this passage, and I don't think you're being honest, right? Here's my first point, a life of worry and anxiety and fear. We're going to talk about this a little bit because... I think it's really important to recognize that having introduced the concept of life that's driven by earthbound treasure, that's what we talked about last week, immediately what Jesus does right here, immediately he talks about worry, immediately he talks about anxiety, immediately he talks about fear. Did you catch that? Immediately he just pivots to talking about this because that world where right now becomes, I got to have this physical thing, this physical experience, something must happen in this physical moment, always results in a life of worry, anxiety, and fear. Always. I'm deeply convinced that we find no greater, no sturdier, substantial rest and satisfaction than when we live in, in, in this moment from the vantage point of eternity versus earthbound treasure. Now think about the logic here. If I've been, if you've been guaranteed a sure place in forever with my Lord, if, if his covenant promises for me is not just his presence in this moment, but ultimately that I will taste the final victory of salvation, then in order for that to be true, he must, be, he must guarantee me every needed provision, every needed grace along the way, or I'm never going to get there. In other words, it's got to be guaranteed now if I'm going to believe it's there or if it's going to be in the future. So it just leads to my second point. The future reign of Christ guarantees his present reign. His present reign. Did you get the point? The guarantee of future grace built into it, the surety of, is, is, is the surety of present grace. The guarantee of future provision, what's built into it is the guarantee of present provision. 
You'll never rest better than when you view life from the vantage point of eternity. And I found in counseling people that are depressed, single people, angry people, married people, lost people, business people, that what I need to do is give them back eternity because they forgot about it or they got some sort of amnesia or they didn't even realize it anymore. Because if, if, if that is what I've been graced with within my future, then that comes what comes with that is the absolute guarantee of every needed provision, every needed grace along the way in the now, or I'll never get to the future. In fact, that means that the future reign of Christ, check this out, guarantees his present reign because his future reign would not, it could not happen in the way it's described in scripture if it wasn't preceded by a present reign that moves us and moves history to that point. So turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. You gotta see this right here. We're not just bumping around. We're not bumbling around, just stumbling around in this broken world waiting for Jesus to reign. Let's get our our theology correct. We're not hanging out in this broken world with a few good principles in our hands that we hope work, just excited about the fact that someday Jesus is gonna reign. That's not it. That's complete heresy. Let's look at what Paul says, arguing that that you can't make any sense about following Jesus without the resurrection, right? That's what he's doing, but other things emerge. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, let's start in verse 20. I'll just go till I want to stop. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as Adam, as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, uh, uh, kingdom to God, the Father, when he has brought to an end all rule and all authority and all power. Here it comes. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be eliminated is death. Now, what is happening here? What's happening in the here and now? See, Jesus is working out the spoils of his victory in the cross. He is, he's reigning now. He must reign until the last enemy is under his feet. The last enemy is death. And then we get the final kingdom. Notice the language in verse 25. Look at the language. For he must reign. That word must, underline it. It's what kind of word? What kind of word is the must? Right? It's an imperative. It's it's a word of necessity. Paul's arguing this must happen or the whole thing comes apart. This must happen. He must reign in order for us to ever have this surety and security of his future reign and our part in it. His future reign. And so the future grace of eternity guarantees to me every provision, every present grace I need now. That's correct theology. The future reign of Christ necessity necessitates a present reign. 
And, and, and hear this, Jesus can only guarantee the delivery of his promises over that which he is sovereign. Did you get that? It's, it's only in those situations where he is sovereign that he's able to guarantee to you the delivery of his provisions and his promises. His promises and his provisions are absolutely dependent on his sovereignty. Because he can only deliver to you with guarantee those things that he has promised to deliver in places where he rules or reigns. Yeah. So this perspective where I begin to understand the plan of God and how he's laid things out, when I begin to focus on the surety of my future, not only gives me surety in the future, but it begins to give me a remarkable security and a remarkable rest and satisfaction in the now. Because if I'm ever going to get there, right, I got to understand actually what's going on in the, in the here and now. And now to the degree that I forget that, to the degree that I lose sight of that fact and the, of, of the future reign and how it, it guarantees the present reign, that future grace guarantees present grace, to that degree, I'm susceptible to wonder, to worry, and to go, what if and what about? And fear and anxiety sets in. In fact, what I begin to do is I begin to live a me-focused life instead of a provision-focused life, a me-focused life. A need-focused life instead of a grace-focused life. I need to get life instead of he's reigning on my behalf life, right? That's what happens to all of us. So need begins to drive the way that we live rather than reigning, ruling, the rule and reign of Jesus driving the way I live. Worry drives my living instead of rest and grace. I'm driving my living. That's what happens. That's what's described right there. Let's move on to um, see the danger of meeting our own needs. Now, this is a big deal. The, there's, there's danger out there of meeting our own needs. A couple of things, right? When we take on the job of meeting our own needs, number one, entitlement, fear, and doubt. Ever recognize any of that? Well, of course, on other people, but not me, Right? One thing that's been argued in this passage when Jesus says your heavenly father knows what you need is that it's God's job to define your need. Did you catch that? When we define what we need, we tend to expand the category and we develop a catalog with all of our needs in it. Oh my gosh. Things I need, things, I mean, you know, things that are not essential for my life you know, all of a sudden, uh, we decide what those are, right? So if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you've just been around children, you know what I'm talking about. If you're at the mall, if you're at the store, that's probably your biggest mistake. But if you walk by one of those athletic shoe stores, man, and there's tennis shoes, sneakers, trainers, whatever you want to call them in that store, one of your children says, hey, dad, 
I need those shoes. I need them. And you look down at their feet and you're like, hmm. Your, your feet seem to be encased in expensive leather right now, right? But they're convinced it's a need. And once they're convinced it's a need, here's some things that happens. They feel entitled to it. Once they say those words, I need it, they feel entitled to it. They feel their right to demand it. And they'll judge your parental love and faithfulness by your willingness to deliver it. Now, we're not really talking about children, though, are we? (laughs) Let me say it again, though. Once your child has named it as a need, I need it. Right? They're convinced they need it. They feel it's completely appropriate to demand it to demand it because they feel entitled to it. They begin to judge the quality of your love and faithfulness to them by their your willingness to deliver it. And I'm convinced this happens to us all the time. And it happens to us vertically. We load into this need category the things that are not needs, things that God has not promised us, things that are not necessary. Graces or necessary provisions, actually, right? They, they take on essentiality to us because they make us feel entitled to them. We feel it's our right to demand this stuff. And we judge the faithfulness of God by his willingness to deliver these things to us. And he's never promised to deliver these things to us in the first place. Why would God allow this to happen? Why doesn't he give me this? I can't believe that there is a God, you know, that this is the way he lets things happen. And that's not only a result, it results in greater fear, but now something even more significant, doubting God. And then you, you don't tend to run for help to somebody that you have doubts with. Here's the second danger. You ready? It's hard to live out God's great commands. His great commands if, if, if I've taken on the job of meeting my own needs, if my life in a fundamental way is need-focused instead of grace and provision-focused, need-focused instead of the king is reigning-focused, then it's very hard for me to live out God's great commands because what I'm living is now, it's, it's all a shrunken little world that's driven by this claustrophobic desires of my wants, my needs, my feelings. It's a kingdom so small, the only one that can fit in it is me. We were created to live for purposes so much bigger than ourselves, right? We were created to worship, gather, give, and serve the sovereign God of the universe Community with God, loving, worshipful community with God that is focused outward and Godward life, motivated by his purposes, that's what we were created for. We're meant to live not only upward-focused life, but an outward-focused life, driven by this call to live in community with others and self-sacrificing love of others. Sacrificing self. That's actually 
the way the household of faith is described, the family of families described, the body of Christ is described, driven by this call to live in community with others and self-sacrificing love of others, worshiping, gathering, giving, and serving, right? So when we take it upon ourselves, the job of meeting our own needs rather than living this way upward and outward, we become captured by the inward thinking world, inward thinking, right? And when that happens, wow, every relationship, every situation, every circumstances, every circumstance makes sure that the things I determine I need, I get. For instance, when it comes to relationships, I'm not necessarily happy that you're in my life because it's a chance for me to serve the king in your life. I'm happy that you're in my life because you may be the vehicle for me getting some of the things that I need. That's a dangerous way to live. It's a consumer, it's a consumer way to live, right? It absolutely builds walls between me and this upward, outward community with God, worse being gathering and giving and serving the Lord. Because I've now reduced my life to my needs I've taken on the agenda of making sure that I get my situations and circumstances and relationships, you know, all situated the way I want them and all the things that I need are there and that's, that's the way I live. I live for getting my needs met. And then everything becomes mine and you live like a owner, not a steward. This is mine. Yep, all of a sudden, that's why we get up in the morning. I get up because I got this catalog and I got to start getting my needs met. So my whole day is designed to get what I need. Our hearts are not engaged in upward worship. Our hearts are not engaged in outward love. I'm driven with, by me being the center of the universe. And so everything becomes that way. Worship's about me. I got, I got to look for a, a worship style that, you know, facilitates, give, gives me the ability to actually engage in worship. Because worship's actually more about me than actually God or anything else. The form is, it, is, is more important than the function by far if it's not meeting your need, right? All of this happens. And it all drives us to, to forgetting the eternal kingdom and to live for the, and because, because we're, we're living for the present treasure. And it always ends in worry. It always becomes a need-based form of living. May God deliver us from this debilitating and dysfunctional way of living. Otherwise, when your kid says, I don't care what age they are, I need a cell phone, just give it to him. Well, you know that's ridiculous. You don't need a cell phone. You know why, right? Okay, it's, it's, I think it's the most dangerous and seductive thing, the most dangerous and seductive idols, actually. Those are the ones that are easily Christianized, too. Oh, man, we're good at that. 
You're not going to be out there committing adultery and become Vail's most successful bank robber. That's not the way it's going to go. You're not going to walk away from the faith. You're not going to walk away from your theology. You won't. You're, you, you'll be able to lead a community group, but it's all driven by something other than eternal kingdom, actually. Everything's driven by your sense of need, and you're not actually there for others. You're not actually there for God. You're actually there for you because you are a functional, eternal amnesiac. You forgot about eternity. And rather than our lives being formed by what I've been given, our lives are formed by, I got to have it. I got to get it. I got to have it. And then they're formed by, I got to have it. And also what what else happens is you, you, you think, I got to have it. And then it leads to, I got to have it. Will I get it? What if, what if, what if, instead of I've been lavished with love and grace that is eternal, far beyond anything I could ever understand. And I don't know what today's going to be like. I don't know what I'm going to face. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this, this bill, all right? I don't know how this relationship's going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, here at work. I don't know how this theological controversy is going to work out. But this one thing I know, Jesus reigns. And future grace guarantees for me present grace. See, we have eternal rest that's been guaranteed by our place in eternity, which guarantees not only a future reign, but a present reign. Not only future grace, but present grace. And when we forget that, we begin to take on the responsibility for meeting our own needs and invariably our sin The needs category just expands and our catalog gets pretty big. We become entitled to things that God has not promised and that we actually are not entitled to. We begin to doubt the goodness of God because he hasn't delivered us those things that we need or we think we need and that leads to greater anxiety, greater fear, Because we don't tend to run for comfort and security to somebody that we doubt. So here's, this might be the biggest question to ask. I asked it at the beginning. How much of what you're doing right now somehow, some way is driven by fear? What does this have to do with me? Number one, Jesus reminds us of the good news of creation. Now it's going to, it's going to, Come to a conclusion really quick, so hang with me. Hang with me, you ready? Here it comes. He says, look around, look at the birds, look at the flowers. There's clear indication every day visible in your life that God does not abandon the work of his hands. Let me say that again. Christ immediately refers to the good news of creation. Did you see that? And here's what Jesus is saying in your temptation to be anxious, in your temptation to forget about the present reign of Christ and the guarantee of the present grace of Christ and and his present provision. God has done something really loving, really kind, very compassionate and unbelievably brilliant. He's embedded all around you reminders of his faithfulness that he's not going to abandon the work of his hands, his creation. And if God would care that much for birds, flowers, grass, and all this stuff, how much more is he going to care about people 
that he's created in his image. Image bearers, those now covered by the costly blood of his son. You have reason to rest and be satisfied because creation speaks to us every day the good news of divine faithfulness. Wow, wow, right? You ever take a picture of a sunset in Arizona and post it to Instagram? You better include the eternal perspective now when you post it. (laughs) That's there to remind you of some things. Present, ruling, reigning, provision, grace, and loving kindness. I mean, if that's the way God's treating the creation, then how's he treating us? What's, What's he got? All right, number two, Jesus reminds us of the good news of family. I love this one. We've been given a father, a father who's kind, a father who cares, a father who has willingly and covenantially, contractually, faithfully and eternally taken on the burden of our positions. Jesus essentially says it makes sense that the pagans in the world worry because they don't have a father, but you shouldn't. You have a father. He knows what you need. He he. He is in the process of delivering, the, the Bible says, the unconverted. Yeah, they worry. Don't. But you shouldn't think what that means. If you don't have it right now, it's because your father knows you don't need it right now. <laughs> your father knows better. How's that for just straight in your face, truth and counsel? Well, you don't need it right now. We really think it points to we're smarter than God, though. (laughs) I know better than God does. If I were sovereign, it's, 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 it's gospel irrationality. It's ridiculous, actually. Jesus says, don't you understand? You've been blessed with a family relationship to the Lord of Lords, the creator, the sovereign one, the king of it all. He's your father. He's, he uh, quit being pagan is what he's saying. <laughs> yep. I think, again, it's right, it's possible to have a solid biblical theology and actually approach Monday like a pagan. You're just filled with worry. You're playing out the what ifs. You know you're pushing that stuff in through your head, getting yourself all worked up, and you're forgetting the good news of family, the household of faith, a family of families. We are children of the almighty, sovereign God of the universe. Number three, what's this got to do with me? Jesus reminds us of the good news of the kingdom. That's, that's really the last thing. I don't know if you thought about it or not, but that call to seek God's kingdom is a call of grace because it's, it's only when we seek God's kingdom that we're free from seeking our own kingdom. <laughs> we're pretty good at building our own kingdom. That call is a call that liberates us from doing all that. We can't seek something that hasn't been given to us. Jesus says it a little bit differently, or Luke records it a little bit differently in Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 and 33. You should turn there. Look at how he says it there. 
Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give it to the poor, give rid of all your stuff. Provide for yourself purses that don't wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, no thief approaches, no moth destroys. See, we're not waiting for the kingdom to come. He's given it to us. Don't be afraid, people, he's saying. Your father's pleased to give you the kingdom when we're driven by earthbound treasure, though, driven by anxious sense of need, earthbound need. We forget about the good news of creation. We forget about the good news of family. We forget about the good news of the kingdom. We become cut off from the rich truth of eternal kingdom. No wonder we get all anxious about everything. And Jesus says, with loving kindness and actually mercy. You know what he's saying right here? At the end of all this, would you stop it, please? Stop it? Why would you live that way when you have been connected to the majestic, glorious treasure in heaven? Why are you living like this? Don't do that. This is all yours. When your life now is connected to what's eternal and unstoppable, when your life is connected to the glorious reign of Jesus, when future grace guarantees your present grace, why would you give in to the life of the Gentiles? Why would you give in to the life to the unconverted, the pagans? Why would you live like that? Who have no father, who have no focus of concern other than I got to get what I need. He goes, that's not who you are. Don't live that way. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness. And then it just ends right there. Isn't that potent? Thank you, Lord, that it just ends right there. It's just right in our faces. And we got to be shaken up like this, I know, because we forget about eternity so quickly and then we begin to develop a catalog. Lord, help us to get rid of our catalogs. I got one just like everybody else. Catalogs full of, this is what I need. I want it, I need it. You provide for all of our needs, Lord. Teach us how to live like this, Lord. It's hard. We need your help. Teach us to live like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com. Thank you.